0: This is episode 313 of the AWS podcast, released on May 19th, 2019.
1: Well, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS podcast. Simon so Leisha here with you. Great to have you back. And I'm rejoined by a guest that you've heard from a few times before, and he keeps on bringing cool stuff along. Welcome to the podcast, Randall Hunt.
0: Hi, Simon. How are you?
1: Good. It's good to have you back, and just to introduce you to those folks who may not have heard you before. You are one of our senior technical evangelists and developer extraordinaire, and all around interesting person working on interesting topics. Is <laughs> how I describe I, you. Around. I like that description. <laughs> <laughs> so you're bringing to us today a really interesting story of both development, machine learning, uh, interactivity. Uh, it's it's the feel good story of the year. Uh, it's a, it's a Twitter bot you built called Where ML. And maybe start with what was the, what was the scratch you were trying to itch? Cause let's face it uh, as developers, that's typically where things start. So tell us why this thing so exists.
0: This is a, the confluence of a couple of different things back in 2016 or maybe 2015, I read a paper called planet by the Google research team about how you could geolocate photos using only the pixels in the image and their original paper used about a 40 gigabyte model and it used DenseNet, which is a a classification framework and and model. And they trained it on some 80 million photos or something and basically took the latitude and longitude coordinates from those and used that as the, the output layer. And I kept thinking there must be a better way than creating this 40 gigabyte model, just because the purpose of deep learning and the purpose of machine learning is they essentially serve as a compression algorithm for knowledge. So it's supposed to extract concepts out of the image. So maybe it could learn to recognize flags and star positions or, or you know, some sort of data that humans would use to figure out where a picture was taken. Almost like and heuristics,
1: heuristics and, and hints that our brains kind of tend to do automatically.
0: Exactly. We're all just over-evolved pattern-matching algorithms. <laughs> So, That's what
1: my mom always tells me.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> so what happened is uh, the University of Berkeley uh, and the International Computer Science Institute seemed to have a similar idea. So uh, Jay Young Choi and Kevin Lee came together and they built something called LocationNet. And this was actually sponsored through the AWS Cloud Credits for Public Research program. So, we sponsored their research and they came out with this MXNet powered version of the idea that you could geolocate photos using only the pixels in the image. Uh, And they used a framework called MXNet, Apache MXNet, which is an open source project that we contribute to and that we use pretty heavily here at AWS. And it was a unique approach to designing the model and also training the model that I thought was super cool. And I thought one of the best ways to kind of expose this to a wider audience would be to make it into a Twitter bot. And at the same time, Twitter had announced the release of this brand new webhook powered API. So previously the only way to get data from Twitter was to use one of their streaming APIs. And those were APIs like GNIP or the site streams API or the user streams API. But you had to have a long lived persistent connection in order to get data from Twitter. With the webhook API, you could actually design a completely serverless Twitter bot for everything from direct messages to even responding in the streams. And I thought this would be a unique application of those two technologies, the machine learning and the serverless component.
1: So, so this is an interesting I think, example of where you had quite a complex idea that you wanted to make accessible. And I'm guessing you didn't quit your full-time job to do this. This was uh, one of those cool projects to do along with all the other stuff. And so you thought, ah, serverless might help me get done quick.
0: Well, at the time we were also trying to grow the AWS Twitch channel viewership. So I decided this would be a fun undertaking to kind of bring my viewers along with me because I wasn't entirely sure how I was going to code this, how I was going to put it all together. And I thought, for viewers on our Twitch.tv/ AWS livestream, they would like to see someone really coding something from scratch. So I coded this from scratch on Twitch.tv. Uh, I think the chief mistake that I made there was I allowed Twitch to name the bot, and Twitch <laughs> voted for Body McBotface. That was always going to happen. Not the best decision.
1: so <laughs> always going to never let people vote but, on the names.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the original kind of setup probably took me around eight hours of pre-work just kind of thinking about how to parse the images because images have th- this data set is actually one of our public data sets. So this is trained on the multimedia commons data set. This is a, a public data set that we have as part of our public data sets program that has something like a hundred million different images or, or videos and audio files in it. And only a subset of those have EXIF data in them. So and the EXIF data is the latitude and longitude information, as well as some stuff about aperture and you know other camera information. So I needed an efficient way of getting all of those images and transforming them. So the first thing I did was I spun up an EMR cluster and I mounted that S3 location where the multimedia commons dataset is. And I wrote a little Java file that would go through and look to see on the file, if it had EXIF information, it, re- would, it would record the, the pixel data, it would record the latitude and longitude, and it would basically build a giant CSV. And then I would filter out any of the really low quality images, and I would filter out any of the images that were just one color or primarily one color, just because those are low signal and they don't really add anything to the network. So in the end, you got around 34 million images or so, and what you do after you get the uh, the latitude and longitude file is you can take a spherical geometry library and create a sparse index of all of those latitudes and longitudes, because there are two different ways of solving this problem, right? You could have you could have solved it as, hey, let me predict where on the latitude line and where on the the longitude line the, this picture lies. So it would be almost like a regression or something. Hmm. Uh, but that doesn't really make sense because half the earth is water and we don't have a lot of pictures of, of water. So you had, you know, data that was not very well distributed and there are a lot, the data has a much higher representation of cities like London and Tokyo and New York and San Francisco and much less representation of say Antarctica. So the, the insight that the planet architecture had was to create multi-scale geographical cells using this this S2 spherical geometry library. And I did the same thing, or, well, uh, the people who created LocationNet did the same thing, and I just totally stole their work. for, (laughs) for, For reference here, I should say I am not smart enough to have come up with this on my own and all credit goes to them. I'm just copying their work and kind of redoing it just so I have a better understanding of
1: it. Classic example of object-oriented reuse, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: The reuse pattern. Yes. (laughs) And so basically you take this network called ResNet and ResNet is a, a, a deep learning network that's typically used in classification problem so it can tell you whether or not a picture is of a chair or of a computer or a projector or a laptop and you rip out the last layer of that network and instead of saying hey classify what object this is i want you to classify where in the world this object is and so you took all of the the latitude and longitude created the sparse index and you got 15527 different multi-scale geographic cells. And those are the classes of the data. So that's what you're trying to predict, the probability that the picture was taken in any one of those cells. And from there, all you do is you just feed in the images into the network and wait. <laughs> and this training is surprisingly parallelizable. So I think the original training for 12 epochs over nine days on a single p 216 x large, uh, you can get that down significantly if you use a P3 and if you spread across a few P3s, yeah. the lowest I've gotten it so far is into about 10 hours. And I, I I could go lower than that, but I haven't really finessed out some of the details and I don't want to waste a lot of time uh, running the same training over again. Yeah. So I'd like it becomes to
1: modify a, them or, before I really. Becomes almost a premature optimization once you get to the point where it's you know, running fast enough for what you are needed to do.
0: Exactly. And so this network is pretty interesting because it's only about 300 megs. Uh, and if you remember from the Planet network, that was 40 gigs. And this one outperforms that network with an order of magnitude, several orders of magnitude, less storage. And it outperforms it by more than 20%. Wow. And, uh, and it's
1: also, I guess, more, cool. more portable and easier to share, given that it's just physically smaller as well.
0: Exactly, you can put it on an edge device, and so there's another kind of tool within AWS called uh, SageMaker, and that's what I used to train all of this, is I basically wrote a Python script in a Jupyter notebook on SageMaker, and then I had the SageMaker MXNet SDK go and create a container image for me to go out and train on all of this data. And since I did the original training, SageMaker has added a few features like pipe input mode, which is pretty good if you want to be able to stream data from S3 as opposed to having to load it all in first. And that, that's a huge time saving because you immediately start the training and you can even do partitioning and kind of good stuff like that. I haven't added any of that advanced stuff. so. In fact, I spend a tremendous amount of time just copying the data over to the instance instead of using that pipe mode. Mm. So the code is all open source and we built it all on Twitch. So if anybody wants to go and switch everything over to pipe mode, you're more than welcome they to can, do
1: they that. Can do a, they can do a V2. And I think it's actually it's, it's an interesting point. This domain is changing and evolving so quickly that the quote-unquote best way to do something can change within months. So you kind of need to think about throwing it away and and or or modifying to the current well, state of play,
0: even switching to pipe mode, it's not hard to do. It's just, <laughs> I mean, it's probably a three-line code change, and I just have not uh, done it. Yeah,
1: just haven't got around <laughs> to it.
0: <laughs> Maybe I'll do that today. But <laughs> they, yeah, this I, could be I, the, the interesting thing is the the network performs really, really well in large cities that have a lot are well represented in the data. So places like Paris, it can tell you not just where the picture was taken, but which side of the street you were on when you took the picture. And the other thing is that the inferences are rather fast. Because the network is very small, you can get inferences in less than 100 milliseconds. Well, you know, around 100 milliseconds Mm -hmm. on on a T2 large. And you can even take that further. There's a framework called SageMaker Neo, which allows you to optimize different models for a particular piece of hardware for the instruction sets that are on that hardware. So if you did want to put this in an IoT device or if you did want to put this in an embedded device, you could do that pretty easily with SageMaker Neo. You would just feed it into this SageMaker compilation job, say, hey, I want you to compile for a M5X large or a T2 large or whatever, and it would go out and optimize for that instruction set.
1: So, so you've done here, the, I guess, the, the, the classic workflow that uh, a lot of our customers like to do with, with ML-type activity, which is you've gathered a nice big data set you've massaged it to the way you want it to be then you've thrown it against a whole lot of gpus which you've only paid for by the hour or by the minute actually and um and and then you've uh, and then you've kind of turned all that off and then it's like well now i've got this cool webhook capability with twitter that i can use to expose it to the world tell us about how you did that because that in the past has been somewhat of a painful process
0: Yes. So the way you would you would have done this previously is you would have spun up a Fargate container or an ECS container or an EC2 instance, and it would have had this long-lived connection. So you would have said, hey, Supervisor D or Forever or some process manager, I want you to run my code and keep a connection open to Twitter. And then Twitter would go read from that connection and maybe throw that into an SQS queue or into a kinesis stream or some other activity it would somehow move that from the ingestion point to the worker and then your worker would go and do the work the way that you can do this now requires way less code and way fewer moving parts or Mm. at least fewer moving parts for a customer to manage because you can spin up an API gateway and that API gateway can be registered as a webhook to twitter And Twitter will invoke that API gateway endpoint every single time your bot is mentioned or every single time you get a direct message. So you can go from Twitter to the API gateway endpoint, which invokes a Lambda function. And that Lambda function, I think the whole thing is maybe 30 lines of Python. And then I go out and I invoke the SageMaker inference endpoint. And that SageMaker inference endpoint is given to me for free. By the Python SageMaker SDK. So when I define my training job, when I define everything else, it will automatically create for me with, with just a few lines of code the inference endpoint as well. So I don't manage a single server in this whole architecture. And I don't have to. The, the only times it's gone down are when I forgot to make it not reply to itself and it started in an infinite loop of <laughs> replying to itself. <laughs> And Twitter kind of shadow banned the the API keys. And uh, the other time that it went down was during a Twitter API outage. So I the the management side on my end is really straightforward. There's nothing to do.
1: And and I think that's the total an, amount
0: of code is really small.
1: I think that's an important thing to consider. So you, you've gone through all the 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 work of training up the model and getting it ready. The deployment is actually kind of a a quote unquote non-event these days because it gets deployed into a self-managing, auto-scaling group uh, of models running in the right place at the right location with an endpoint in front of them, an API endpoint in front of them, and then from an application perspective, you're just calling the endpoint. And so this gives you things like scalability, lets you do blue-green deployments, it lets you do rolling upgrades, all the stuff that's heavy-duty work is not work anymore.
0: And I, I really, you know, it's from, you know, Import Bodo 3 Bodo 3client equal, you know, SageMaker runtime and then SageMaker invoke endpoint. And then you just Dumb. pass in some JSON and you're done. Done. Uh, there were a couple of little clever things that I did. Hmm. So I, I made it use emojis so it would appeal to millennials uh, like myself. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: I discovered this is a fascinating thing. In Unicode, if you add a particular offset to a country code, it will generate the emoji flag of that country.
1: I did not know that. That is there. That is your um your tip of the day.
0: <laughs> I, I mean that that was pretty interesting and definitely worth kind of showing on Twitch. And that was probably the most popular feature on Twitch. Everything else was just people <laughs> yelling at me for misspelling the word DynamoDB.
1: Well, if you, if you've ever done any development and your are you're typing coding while someone's looking over your shoulder, you know how freaky it is and how you just forget how to type. So I can imagine. Randall, doing that with a few hundred or a few thousand people makes it much more relaxing and easy.
0: (laughs) Uh, It's a little, yeah, no, it's no problem at all. Is that after
1: everyone finishes uh, debating which editor you're using in your IDE choices?
0: (laughs) I built a whole website around that just so people (laughs) can vote on it.
1: So so, so talk to us about the, I guess, the authorization of that API call. So the the API gateway exists and that's tied into the the Twitter webhook. Um, right. How did you automatically so make that actually work?
0: Uh, you don't make it automatically work. So you have to include a little bit of code here. And the reason you have to do that is that Twitter, uh, there are different kind of sub implementations of the OAuth spec or the, the verification spec. So Twitter will furnish to you an application secret and, app, uh, and, and you know, all these four credentials, And you have to use those credentials to authenticate the request. The only one you really need on the authorization side is the consumer secret. And that's going to be used to calculate a signature of the request. And I I could talk about, you know, challenge response checks and and things like that. Uh, But for anyone who's in the know on this stuff, essentially you... Create an HMAC based on the response token for when you register the webhook and it's a SHA 256 encrypted hash, and then you respond with the base 64 encoded version of that. And if the digest match, then your authentication is secure. Uh, that's a really complicated way of saying Twitter wants to make sure that the incoming request. Uh, Or the request that you want to make sure that your API gateway endpoint is receiving the request from Twitter. So you can do that in a bunch of different ways. You can whitelist Twitter's IPs. You can do do all manner of different firewall things. But the easiest way is to just verify that Twitter has the correct OAuth signature or or Twitter webhook signature. And API gateway supports a few different custom authorizers. But the API gateway custom authorizers only have access to the header information. They don't have access to the body of the message. And Twitter chose in their implementation of this to make the body of the message be included in the calculation of the checksum. So you have to... As part of your Lambda function, take a proxy invocation from API gateway to the Lambda function and say, hey, I'm going to take the headers. I'm going to take the body of the message and calculate this, this HMAC.
1: So you're basically passing it through to the the quote unquote back end to do the work, but then still using the framework of the API gateway to do the authorization.
0: Sort of. Uh, It's pretty much Lambda that's doing the authorization. And there are a couple of different advantages here. So you can use Secrets Manager, and you can store the various tokens in Secrets Manager. Mm. And the other advantage of that is if you're managing multiple bots for multiple different companies. So if you wanted to make this a multi-tenant solution as opposed to a single implementation, you could also write a Lambda function in Secrets Manager to rotate and update those secrets for you as part of a user's workflow. So say a user wanted to log into your portal and register a bot and set all of that up. You could do all of that and then fire off a Lambda function to have that fetch the secrets from Twitter on behalf of your user. And I I actually keep all the secrets in Secrets Manager, or you could just as easily use Parameter Store if you wanted. I keep all my secrets in Secrets Manager, and then I load them in and use those to to verify the request. And the, the best practice here is actually to do that outside of the Lambda handler so that it's not having to redo that work. Every single time it, the function is invoked, yeah. it's only doing it on that first invocation.
1: Now that makes a lot of sense, and, and, and offloading that security function makes a lot of sense. And so, if someone, so so to, to call this, someone just tweets uh, towards at where ML with with a picture, is that right? And then what do they get in response?
0: They get back a Google Maps static API map that has three pins on it. And the API supports an arbitrary number of outputs. Uh, I think there's probably some limit in the, you know, you couldn't send all 15,000 probabilities, but you could send a, a significant number. And that will go out and invoke slash invocations, and it will respond with the link to that Google Maps static map URL, as well as the three pins on where it thinks that image is, the three most likely locations that that image was taken at, and uh, the emoji flags and the place names. And the place names come from a reverse geocoder library, which is a Python library. I'll give a shout out to them. I think it's only maybe uh, a three megabyte Library, but it has place names that are encoded with latitude and longitude points. So I think latitude and longitude alone are not very useful in a Twitter bot. So it's good to reverse geocode those into real place names nice. uh, this works really well except for in Iceland where apparently everything has an extremely long name and doesn't fit on Twitter
1: <laughs> so Iceland is Twitter proof
0: <laughs> they're, they're 100% Twitter proof and I'm glad Twitter upped to I guess it's 240 characters That's now right, because yeah. back when it was still 140 or whatever you know you could not fit half of the names of these places in there
1: <laughs> and what sort of what sort of hit rate do you get like what's what's the accuracy look like from what you've been able to tell so far?
0: So here's the the kind of other section of this that I'm working on currently is we have a service called Amazon Comprehend that can detect sentiment. And I want to parse the responses to the bot. So I have a very rudimentary parser right now, which literally just looks at the reply. And if it, it contains the word yes or correct, it marks the response as correct. And then I record that later and I take that image and I can use it to retrain the bot later on given that it's trained with about 40 million images retraining, you would need another probably let's say hundred thousand images before you'd really see any effect, uh, on the training, uh, training with just another thousand or something is not super useful. So collecting all those images and then kind of determining which ones were correct and which ones were incorrect. If they're incorrect, and I get a response from the person who tweeted at the bot, I wanna be able to extract out what the correct place was if they tell me what it was. I have not quite figured out how to do that yet, but I've been playing around with taking Amazon Comprehend to extract out the key entities of the response. And if one of those is a location, assuming that that location is the correct one and then feeding that back into the model. But that's work in progress for now.
1: Or maybe people can uh, contribute to that as part of the, the work that's out there. Where where is this available for people to, to look at and to to learn more about or to contribute to?
0: At the moment, it is available at github.com/randman/wearml. The original version is still available at slash body Um <laughs> Of course, <laughs> I've made several modifications and iterations. And I think by the time that this podcast is published, there should be a full website up at whereml.bot. So excellent. that will have a lot more details and you'll be able to use it without having to go through the Twitter API and you'll be able to kind of learn more about things there and there'll be a blog post to sort of accompany that.
1: Very exciting, very exciting. And there was there was something you said at the very start that I'm going to round back to because I think it's an important point that maybe we skirted over is that before you started building all this, you, you spent about eight hours, you said, kind of researching and figuring out what you wanted to do. And that's kind of the important part, isn't it? You know, now that we know that we can implement using a variety of tools, it's, it's the what i what am I trying to do here and does it make sense is, is kind of a very important thought process to go through that we sometimes forget because we're so excited to start building.
0: It is. And for me, I'm quite familiar with, Python and I'm quite familiar with Boto3 and quite familiar with AWS. So that wasn't the section that I was researching. What I was researching is, is, is this model actually viable? Is this really a, a, a way to geo predict things? And then I started thinking about the architecture. So I was kind of sitting there with my whiteboard or I say whiteboard, it was really post-it notes, sitting there with my post-it notes and kind of drawing things out, thinking about the architecture, looking at the Twitter API and figuring out exactly how the web hooks were working and making sure before I really threw myself into it that at least the core parts were all there and that if something were missing, I had a bit of a backup plan on how to implement it. Uh, and then I started live streaming and we, we coded it up.
1: How long did it take to do the the coding in that particular stream?
0: I think we got, the basic parts working. So this doesn't include training the model, the model I had already trained at that point. And if anybody's interested in this, it's actually uh, the the model is part of that public data set. Now the Berkeley multimedia commons one, so you can download it with the pre-trained weights and everything. This, uh, I would say it took me at least four hours, probably five to get the original version working and then to add in the emojis and some of the error handling and stuff. I would say that took another two hours in a separate stream later on.
1: And the emoji stream was obviously the most popular stream.
0: (laughs) That was by far more popular than the actual complicated part of the project.
1: (laughs) Got to love it. This sounds really exciting. And I like, Randall, how by recording this podcast with me, you've created yourself a compelling event to get everything updated and out there for everyone to contribute to. So hopefully you'll get lots of interest.
0: I hope so. And I, I if anybody wants to contribute to this, I welcome all contributions and other ideas. And what I will say is this is research that other people did. I'm just reusing it. So I, I think all credit for the good ideas here should go to them and all credit for the stuff that's broken can go to me.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. We st- we stand on the shoulders of giants, as I say. So it's a it's a good thing to do, that's for sure. Randall, thanks so much for coming on the show again.
0: All right. Thanks for having me. Bye.
1: And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is a place to do that. And until next time, keep on building.